Hey, welcome to the How to Write a Fucking Novel podcast. I wonder if I say that the same every time, if there's a supercut. Probably a do. So I'm back on the mountain path. You can kind of hear, I think you can hear that through the recorder. It's not windy right now, but you can hear the wind up above the trees. Kind of a windy day. So the, uh, the reason I'm always walking on this path is that the last book I wrote, the nonfiction book about the video game The Last of Us, I've been recording an audio book version that I'm also gonna put on YouTube with like video, corresponding video and shit. But I don't, uh, there's like soundproof booths that you can sign out at the libraries here. But I just don't feel comfortable in there. It's a real stale environment for one thing. And they're not as soundproof as you might think. Like I still feel very constrained. I want to fucking perform this goddamn book. So I like came up with this idea to combine stuff. Like I like walking through the woods and I kind of like having a distinct destination each day. So I eventually found this spot where you got to walk through a trail down a hill, up a hill first then down a hill, across a little train yard and then across a beach and there's nobody there, <laughs> which is hard to do in a city. It's so hard to find a place where there's no one around. But it's also winter time on the west coast, so it's raining almost every day. And today it's real windy, especially once I get down by the water. I think today will be a failure day. But that's the other thing. It's like, hey, at least I get to walk through the woods. I didn't take a bus to, because the, uh, the library where it's easiest to get sound booths is the one on Hastings. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of Hastings Street in Vancouver, but it's basically the shittiest part of all of Canada. It's fucking awful. And yet it has a really nice library just right there. So I found this cool-ass book, or at least it seems cool. I haven't started to read it yet. Just today, I was at uh, a Value Village thrift store. The zipper is starting to break on my jacket, so I'm like, should I get a new jacket? I was, I don't know, whatever, just looking to see what they had. Because I'm a fan. I'm a fan of getting used shit, reusing stuff. I'm sure economic theory is something I'll get into more in this show. But uh, just the, the time and money connection. is, uh, well, I guess I talked about it a bit yesterday, but a huge problem in North America that people are just working, overworked all the time, always so busy. There's just, they don't have time for stuff. In our specific case, we're talking about writing. So it's like, how do you make time for writing? The easiest way to make time for writing is to work less. And the easiest way to work less is to spend less. And the easiest way to spend less is to not buy new shit. <laughs> you know? The recorder that I'm recording this fucking podcast on, it's like 10 years old. It's insane how old it is. I can't believe it still works. There's a little spring in uh, the compartment. It's called the Zoom H4. You can't even get the H4 anymore. It's all the H4N. There's a little compartment where you put in the batteries in an SD card. 
and uh, the spring broke on that years ago I mean like like two years after I got this thing and that would have been a perfect time to just like well guess I better buy a new one guess I better lay down 300 bucks for a new zoom but I found out that if you take a little rubber earbud from headphones it like acts as a surrogate spring because you just need something to just kind of add pressure to hold in the batteries and then when you unlatch it that it'll kind of pop open so this little piece of rubber totally does the job and then uh, this recorder went through a house fire the firefighters found it and for two weeks it didn't work I was just holding on to it as a memento of the fire and then it just started working again I dropped it in my friend Mike's toilet and again it didn't work for a while then it just started working again and I mean works great now it still works and I think a lot of that kind of stuff it's just uh, I don't know apparently it's hard for people to retrain their brains like they get used to a certain like oh this is just how it is this is just how money should be spent I should just be buying new clothes all the time I'd be buying stuff and just buying shit how come I don't know just always did my parents did and now I do Whereas I think I got a little lucky in a way that uh, my mom had 12 brothers and sisters. And even though my parents are pretty well off, they're real estate lawyers. I don't know how well off, but I mean, presumably okay. But she never acted like we had money. I didn't really know that we did have money when I was a kid. Everything was always hand-me-down stuff because that's how she grew up. And I think it's been a useful thing to learn. I take like a pride in it. You know, that it's like, how long can I keep something until I have to replace it? Anyway, I'm way rambling. What the fuck am I talking about? So I was at the thrift store and I just, while I was there, I was looking at books. And uh, it's always weird to just be browsing books because, you know, all you can tell is what's on the spine. It's not a good way to tell what's going on. But it's fun sometimes just to try books, just to see what happens. Because I also have kind of a theory with used books, I feel like there's probably a better chance that you'll find something interesting because it's already been through someone else's hands. Someone else already got this thing once. It must have some value, right? Like how when you look at movies of the past or whatever, everyone only remembers the good ones. If you just go see a random movie that came out this week, it's probably nothing. It's probably very forgettable. So like with books, like uh, I found that book, The Giver, which was weird to look up. Apparently it's super famous. It sold a million copies. I never heard of it before. I just saw it at a thrift store and I thought it looked kind of interesting. And then the reason it was at the thrift store is because it sold a million copies you know it's been like vetted by the world just by the fact that it is everywhere and there's so many copies floating around or uh, Lost in the Barrows was another one just like these really cool books and in this case I just saw on the spine of the book the Jolly Roger the pirate symbol and I picked it up and it's called Under the Black Flag by David Cordingly and I was like alright this is probably some kind of pirate fiction book, it's probably no good. And it turns out this is actually a non-fiction book about pirates. The romance and the reality of life among the pirates. And I was like, oh, that's excellent. Like, I love when that happens. When you see 
a book just from a symbol and it's exactly what you hoped it might be. It's just a goddamn book about pirates. And I'm extra interested because like I just, I've always liked the idea of pirates, probably just from playing Monkey Island as a kid, but the uh, fantasy of pirate life is really cool. And I only know a little bit about the reality, but even that is like, just like fascinating. I read this kid's book when I was babysitting once about, it was like a pop-up book, but it was the harshest pop-up book I ever read that talked about 40 lashes and getting keel hauled and being stranded and sleeping on the deck of the ship when it was too hot to sleep under the deck, you know, to sleep in the quarters. Or just that a lot of pirate ships had a cat on them because there'd be stowaway mice, so the cat would kill the mice. Just interesting. So uh, this will be like that, except way more in-depth, and it's like, awesome. Just the book I wanted, and it's just so cool that I just found it by accident. And it also reminded me of this story last winter. I never really put this together, and I'd kind of forgotten about it, but uh, I was reading about ebooks and people self-publishing. And the information I gathered basically made it seem that uh, the best way to be successful in that realm is to write a series. And you can like give the first one away for free and then sell the other books. And you know, sell a big, I mean, I guess romance has just like taken over that whole, that whole marketplace. Although really every marketplace. I remember I applied for a job once at Chapters, which is a big bookstore chain in Canada. I didn't get the job, but on the first day when they were just kind of doing a little group interviews and showing people around, they basically said like, hey, time to get acquainted with the romance books because that's our bread and butter. It's great when a big Harry Potter book or something comes out, but day to day, the reason these doors are still open is the romance section. So get to know it, prepare to guide people toward it. But uh, I don't really have any particular plans or inclination to try to write a giant eight book series of something. Even just at the pace that I write, I don't think it'd be realistic. I think in that marketplace, it does seem like something a little shittier. Not bad necessarily, but more, like I feel like there's a difference between compelling writing and really robust, valuable, like vitamin-filled writing, you know? Like there's a kind of writing you can do that will keep you going. It's like, you know, just the fucking action-adventure Dan Brown shit or, or the vicarious kind of physiological thrill of reading romance, but it's like empty calories, like what sticks with you after. So I like respect that kind of stuff for its craft and for its ability to tow people along, but it's not what I do. It's not what I'm gonna be known for or even able to do. My whole thing is to write slow, not to write fast. And to fill eight books that are 800 pages, you need to write fast. And I think you need to have an aptitude for being compelling in a way that I am not. It's like video games. I feel like video games are in a similar place where, I can't remember where I heard that said, but that like video games are more compelling than they've ever been, but less worthwhile, you know, less meaningful. 
It's interesting though to think of like how there's different ways to describe something as good. If something is compelling, it's good, definitely. But if you're not still thinking about it three years later, how good was it, you know? Like, what is your aim? What are you trying to do? I'm trying to do the latter. I want stuff that sticks in people's heads. Maybe I'll succeed, maybe I'll fail, but at least I'll fail doing what I want to do. That's another really weird thing, too, like that I see a lot in books that are like about writing advice and stuff. Of like, don't try to chase the market. Just, you know, write what you like. And I feel like it's so weird that someone needs to be told that. Like, that there's all these people out there writing that are just like, I wonder what people would like. I wonder what would be popular. And again, what people would like and what would be popular is to build an apartment building, not to write a book, you know? If you just want to work the marketplace and make money, don't write a book, you fuck. Really seems strange to me that that's a thing someone needs to be told. Hey, a rainbow. Big ass rainbow. But yeah, just as an experiment. So last winter, I was back home in my hometown for the winter. God, it was so cold. <laughs> but uh, I was learning about ebook, the ebook marketplace, and this idea of having a big sprawling epic. I was like, you know what? That's so outside of my wheelhouse. But just for the fuck of it, let's see what would happen if I just do right, basically blind without giving one fuck about if it's any good or not and just see how far I can get. And I've always liked, well, I just, I guess it was like just the very basest seed of a story that I really had no ideas for. In my mind, I could just see a pirate ship. And I always liked, there's this old computer game called King's Quest Three, where there's a part where you're trapped in the hold of a pirate ship and you have to use a little magic spell to escape. I think you, uh, you make everyone on board fall asleep, I think? But then if you don't have a way to get out, you just drift away and die. It's been a while. So I was thinking of that, and I was also thinking of kind of like a Prince Namor, Aquaman kind of guy. Maybe he has magic powers, maybe he just is a fish man, whatever. But I thought of that guy being on a pirate ship and just being comfortable because he doesn't necessarily need the ship. It's okay if he dives overboard. Like if he, maybe he could be trapped in the hull of this ship. He just needs to find a way out. Because once he gets out of the, the hold of the ship, he can try to fuck with the pirates that captured him if he wants to or do whatever, but he doesn't, it doesn't matter. He could just dive overboard and be okay. That's it, that's all I had. And I wrote every day for that for about maybe two months. And again, I just kind of fell off without deciding or meaning to fall off. I just hadn't dedicated myself to it. I didn't have any kind of a strong plan. But it was a really fun, it's fun to even think of. It was a fun time, a fun thing to write. And I think it was really useful because it really was kind of instructive as far as like I had been kind of kind of waffling back and forth between writing loosely and having a plan. Where I had tried just writing in a loose style and it hadn't worked because I didn't have enough of a plan. And then for a long time after that I had too much of a plan. 
way too much planning, way too many notes. It just became instantly paralyzing. So to go back to this thing and just to, just to not give a shit at all. I'd never given this little of a shit about writing. I didn't care if it sounded good. I didn't care if it sounded bad. I didn't care if it was stiff and stilted. I didn't give a shit. I just wrote every day about this guy. And I did puzzle out a way to have him uh, escape the hold. And it's like, it's kind of, it was like bullshit. <laughs> it was a real bullshit story where I'm just like making up magic and stuff as I go. Like, oh, I guess if he has these particular ingredients and he presses them between his palms and he chants the words of his homeland, it turns into a magic powder dust he can use that if he blows it through the keyhole, he can temporarily mind control someone or whatever. I just come up with what I needed at the time. And I feel like it's the kind of thing like an adult would probably find annoying because it's so clear that I'm just making it up. But maybe as a kid's book it'd be cool because I, when I was a kid, I know I sure didn't give a shit <laughs> if stuff seemed like it really made sense, who cared? But I think it was a valuable little run just to remind me how fun it is to write by the seat of your pants. And that's where I've kind of fallen into this nice middle ground of what I'm doing now that seems like it's working the best for me than anything has ever worked, where I do have a plan. I do have notes, I do have a general structure, I do have an ending in mind. But then when it's time to write, I put that stuff all aside. That's all backup material. That's all nets to rescue me if I fall or like fog lights if I get lost and I don't know where to go. But the actual writing, I now just sit down and just write and see what happens and just because there is like a type of creativity that your mind can come up with when you're in that moment, when all of your faculties are focused on writing and focused on that moment and on getting to the next moment. When you're in that little writer flow, you can come up with stuff that you absolutely won't come up with if you're just pre-plotting everything and everything is just notes that have been figured out beforehand. So yeah, that came back to me today and I'm like, oh yeah, remember that story? That was fun, it was cool. It was useful. It's interesting to look back on all of my various failed or just incomplete or just abandoned projects and seeing how like, oh yeah, each one did kind of nudge me. Each one did kind of nudge me in a handy direction towards something that is helpful now. Okay, so to get to uh, do a quick writing recap, so uh, basically, since this podcast started, I've been toiling away at trying to finish chapter 12 of my book. We came in in media res in chapter 12. And uh, I finished it. And I think this is also a nice little example of how it seems like I'm going real slow. And I am. But as long as you work every day, the days add up so fast. I mean, it's not even the end of the first week yet, and I'm already done chapter 12. Granted, chapter 12 was three quarters done when this podcast began, but uh, yeah, I keep reiterating this because I'm quite chuffed about this little workflow I got going, this little technique. It's like, uh, it's like one of these amazing little things of like, wow, like putting less pressure on yourself, or as I was saying yesterday, putting the pressure in the right place. 
putting pressure on yourself to write every day, but not putting pressure on yourself to be especially productive in that writing. Just, man, it adds up so fast. And, uh, and it really is that what I'm looking for, my goal is not short-term gains. It is sustainability. It's the marathon, not the sprint. And I feel like I'm on a very good pace that I think I can just maintain and maintain and maintain and it'll add up much quicker than it seems. So uh, yesterday I had, basically I had the end of the chapter figured out. Pretty simple, just basically these two characters were gonna leave this, uh, this facility they were in and then they were either gonna continue to hang out or more likely the one was gonna tell the other, hey, go fuck yourself, I'm out. And uh, I love how this really, it's like, I keep kind of confirming for myself also that going slow is better, just even from the quality of what I'm writing. Again, this like weird, almost contradictory thing of like putting less pressure on myself brings out better stuff. Truly, the older I get, I mean, the more this seems to be true in, in everything, you know? I was gotten a big exercise kick a couple of years ago, and I fucked up. I have like an imbalance in one of my shoulders. It's lower than the other. I think I have like some curvature of the spine going on that I hereditarily picked up. And I ended up kind of like tearing, I think, or pulling a muscle real bad in my upper back, near my neck on this one side. I did it twice, and it kind of messed me up for like a long time, like nine months I couldn't properly exercise. So like pushing yourself is bad, it's not good, you know? Because then when everything fails, when everything collapses, you'll wish you hadn't pushed yourself earlier because whatever gains that you gained from doing too many pull-ups or frazzling your brain by staring at a blank piece of paper until blood came out of your eyes isn't worth it when two months later you're on the shelf because you fucked yourself up. Slower is faster, my friends. Slower is faster. So yesterday my only goal was, all right, I got these notes. Just got to write them out into real sentences, finish up the chapter. And as I was writing, just this weird notion hit me. This is really kind of abstract and a little strange, but they're in this alien facility, right? Well, it's alien to the girl, not alien to the dude. He's leading her out because it's this complicated, weird facility and she doesn't quite know how to get out of there. So she's following along behind him and just looking into the different rooms where people are doing who knows what, doing weird alien shit. Interfacing with the Acomulon is what he describes it as. And she made fun of him for that. She's like, whatever, man, I don't know. I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. But now that she's just following behind him, the idea was like that following behind someone isn't something she's done in a long time because her species is so headstrong. So that kind of reminds her of being a kid and just like following along behind her grandfather and seeing all this weird alien stuff reminds her also of being young when things were new and things were unclear. 
and she still needed someone to explain stuff to her. So she has this weird little moment of nostalgia in a way, or in a weird way, even though she's on this, in this place that's nothing like where she's from, and she doesn't understand what's happening. She doesn't know what's going on. All she knows is that it's upsetting in some way to, at least to this, one alien being that she talked to. So presumably that's how other people feel too. So it's all just, it's all just a weird, weird little moment, like one of those weird little undescribable, strange emotions. So she's feeling like a sense of empathy, maybe, on the verge of empathy for these creatures that she's never felt that way about them before. And at the same time, just looking at them doing whatever they're doing, hardly even understanding it, she also has this sense that she's just so glad that she's not them. Because <laughs> that's something I used to feel as a kid. This, the memory just came back to me. Specifically, I was thinking about it with like video games. I had quite a few video games as a kid, but there's always people that have more. And I'd always think of that of like, oh, this kid, man, he's got a power pad. He's got Rob the Robot. He's got a fucking subscription to Nintendo Power. This kid's got everything. This is fucking awesome. But, <laughs> I don't know why, but the thought would just kind of come to me of like, but man, I'm just, I'm just glad I'm not him. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a common feeling people have. Maybe it's not expressed so directly. But I would just never want to be somebody else except for me. And I have heard it read in psychology books and stuff. It's generally like, no matter what people's problems are, unless their problems are really severe, if you give them a thought exercise of like, okay, you've got these three problems. If we took three problems from everyone on earth, put them in a big barrel, mixed them all up and doled out three new, not even problems, just attributes at random, most people are like, no way, man. I don't want to do that. Like, I'll stick with the devil I know. <laughs> like, okay, maybe I've got sciatica, but who knows what else I might get. Like, I'd rather, deal with what I'm dealing with and be who I am and have what I have. And I thought she could just have that, that moment of like, even though she is from this terrible situation where her whole society's gone, her culture's gone, her people are gone, her future is completely unknown, but she's still glad to be herself and not to be one of these other beings, these other entities. And then having her be in this kind of mindset, this uh, just kind of hyper-insulated, introverted mindset, changed the end of the chapter instead of, does she stick with this dude or does she tell him she's going off on her own? I just had her do neither. I just had her slip away. Like as they get to the bottom floor of this facility, she just turns a different way, lets him keep walking, she walks another way, in Canada, we call that the Irish goodbye. <laughs> My friend Matt does it all the time when he's been out drinking too much and he just doesn't want to deal with doing the rounds and saying the goodbyes. And he knows he's just, he's like, oh, my head's just not in this right now. He just slips away and it's fine. Everyone knows that that's his thing. You know, and it's like, hey, have you seen Matt? It's like, oh, it's fine. He just jetted, he just peaced out. So I decided that she's gonna do that. 
And all these things, as with every example I'm probably going to give throughout the whole run of writing this book, it's all small things. But these small things add up. Like, I can go through this chapter and I can pick out like 18 times that I made a small choice and a small decision that I wouldn't have made if I was pushing myself and if I was hurrying. And those just add up like crazy. Like, I really think that's the difference between a compelling book and a rote book. And I'm certainly not under any illusions that this book is going to be some kind of big success. But the people who identify with it, I mean, that's another way I've always thought of stuff, is even if I'm writing something or saying something or doing something that might not be popular with a lot of people, I don't want to let down the people that are like me, you know? If I voice some opinion or write something or do something, I mean, not always, I'm not a fucking maniac psychopath, there's plenty of times when I've just fucked up and I'm just like, okay, that was fucked up and I just made a huge mistake. But there are times when if I make someone mad or uncomfortable or I do something they don't like, it's okay as long as what I did is what I would have liked, you know? Because I think of myself as an audience and what I don't like is when someone isn't true to themselves. What I don't like is when somebody kowtows to the majority and changes their thoughts and opinions and actions and their work and their product because they think it's what people want or they want the most people to like it or blah 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 that just leaves me in the cold like that's to me that's them I don't care what the other people think you know it's like okay so everyone likes this that's great but what you've said to me is that you don't care what I want you don't care what I think you don't care what I like you're not trying to talk to me so why do I give a fuck all I give a fuck about is the, as an artist, the only reason, I think, to do anything is to present that idiosyncratic view that only you have, that sense of life, that sense of style that only a person like you can present so that the other people like you will resonate with it and will identify with it. I'm not making stuff for everybody. I'm making stuff for the people like me. And even though like, I can barely explain this little moment, someone's gonna read this and it's gonna be like, whoa, this is so weird. Who would write this in this moment where it's just these characters walking down a hallway? Why would it slip into this explanation of this bizarre amalgam of feelings and memories? This is not a common thing, this is not Here's how to write a movie in the three-act structure. Here's how to write a ripping good yarn. Here's how to sell a script. It's none of that shit. It's just, it's only, it's what felt right to me. And someone out there is going to read that and be like, this, was, this is so cool. This book stands out. This story stands out from most of the stuff that I read because it's just weird. It's a, clearly the product of this one person. Or even the notion of, even if someone can't directly relate to the stuff I'm trying to put forth, the fact that I'm trying to put forth something that's just for me, that's just from me, that's just how I think of things and how I see things, just that very act of being personal and being idiosyncratic can be relatable in a way that actual relatableness is not. Actual 
bland relatableness misses everyone and is just pointless. Whereas when someone is trying to express to you the specific way that they feel and that they see things and that they have experienced life or the feelings that they have had, even if you haven't had those feelings, I think that can still reach people better because it's expressing the larger feeling of just being an individual and trying to express oneself. And I think everyone has felt that. So it can like circle back around, you know, by being unrelatable, it can become more relatable. And if it doesn't, fine, who gives a shit, whatever. At least you wrote what you like, <laughs> you know? At the end of the day, you can be happy with it. And the point of all of this rambling is, if I had buckled down three days ago and been like, gotta finish this chapter, gotta get my word count in, gotta get this done, I wouldn't have come up with any of this. It would have just been a flat end to this chapter. So go slow. <laughs> like, I, I just, this is gonna be the same thing I'm probably gonna say every day. Make sure you're right every day, but don't push yourself on any of those given days. As long as you do something, as long as you inch forward each one of those days, your work will still add up at a nice clip and the results will be so much more unique and so much more well thought out. And just any time that you're writing and you just, even if you're just not sure, if you're just like, like I don't even know if this is boring or not, I just, maybe I'm getting too close to it. Maybe I've been in the mines too long today. Maybe I'm just filling up space to fill up space. Maybe I'm just spitting out words to spit out words. Maybe that's good enough. Stop, stop till tomorrow or work on something else. And tomorrow you'll come up with something better, something way better. <laughs> so on the docket for tomorrow, I did have this idea as I was midway through chapter 12, I had this great idea this one night while I was just like laying in bed this great idea for like a fight scene that could happen where things finally come to a head between the alien species in this story and an actual fight breaks out and like see how that goes see how their various alien powers interact and I was so excited about it that I jotted down all the notes I had and all the thoughts I had about it as chapter 13 I'm like yeah that'll be what'll happen next but now that I'm done chapter 12 it's way too soon for that to happen. I'm not remotely ready in the grander scheme of this story. This is gonna be a pretty big deal for things to finally devolve into violence. I mean, this book's gotta be half over before that happens, minimum, maybe more than that. Because when things finally break down, when this alien war orphan finally gets in a fucking brawl with the locals, she's just gonna become more reserved, more removed. And it's gonna be like a brutal fight, like a she almost dies type of fight. So I just gotta put that aside. I think I know where in the story that can happen. I've got the story sort of split into four general quarters, some of which will be longer than others, but basically quarter one was her by herself. Quarter two is her hanging out with Quailum the alien boy. 
Quarter three is her learning how to interface with the Acamulon herself. And quarter four is the shit hitting the fucking fan. So I think between two and three is probably where this fight should happen. Maybe earlier, but probably there. Either way, not yet and not soon. So instead of naming it chapter 13, I just named it fight scene notes. So the problem is, I don't know at all what chapter 13 is going to be. No idea. So today's job is just to go sit down, just to go through all of my slush notes, my 250 or whatever random little notes that I wrote, and see what should happen next. Just figure out what should happen next. Set myself up something to do tomorrow. Which, speaking of, I will see you tomorrow. Since we talked about pirates, let's play, uh, there's a Flogging Molly song, Queen Anne's Revenge, I think it's called. It's from their third album. It's very piratey. And it's real cool. So, let's listen to that, think about a, a buccaneer's life, and, uh, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. Bones and the serpent's head Dancing with the madman